0: Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow On Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of The Fellow One Call, the Hemog Podcast. We're coming at you from Merlot University Medical Center. I'm Roanoke. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And on today's episode, we continue on on our Hemog emergency series, uh, this time talking about Brain Mets. Do you
1: guys, any thoughts before we roll right into the episode? You know, I'm I'm just really excited to get into it and have another discussion with some of our expert consultants. And the other thing I just want to say is I'm watching Bridgerton right now, and I know I'm a little late to the party here, but man, what a good show. Season two is incredible.
2: Nothing like Bridgerton and Brain Mets. Let's do it.
0: (laughs) Dan, I couldn't agree more. Without further ado, let's roll the show. Guys, I think last week we had a fantastic discussion on the first of our oncologic emergencies that is SVC syndrome. It was really nice to kind of, kind of go through those details, have our guests kind of chime in and give their perspective on the situation as well. And I was hoping this week we could continue on that conversation that we're having, this time with uh, a little bit of a nuance discussion about some more neurologic complications that can happen as a result of oncologic emergencies. So, Dan, do you, do you have you ever seen a case of anything that maybe kind of fits this bucket, anything that you can think of in your years of fellowship?
2: Yeah, you know, uh, I've got one that comes to mind pretty readily. Uh, this happened to me not too long ago with one of my clinic patients, a 65-year-old guy who I was treating for a stage 4 adenocarcinoma of the lung. You know, we had, when we started out, we knew it was metastatic to bone, uh, but his initial staging MRI was negative for anything in his brain. And I was treating him with a little carboplatin, pembrolizumab. And I had him on just maintenance pembrolizumab for, you know, a few months. But over the past month, he was getting sort of worsening headaches. He wasn't eating very well. He said food just wasn't tasting very good. And he started getting sort of worse nausea and, th- and throwing up beyond that. And it kind of all came to a head when he um, showed up in the emergency department just with intractable vomiting. And the uh, CT scan they got there showed a mass, and based on sort of blurring of the gray-white border uh, on that CT scan, they were a little worried about vasogenic edema, which unfortunately they confirmed on on an MRI later on. So, you know, I was surprised and, and upset that this had happened. You know, I felt like I was watching this guy get worse, like, why didn't I think to scan his head? But uh, I guess it happened a little bit quicker than I was, I was thinking it would uh, for someone who seemed to be responding well to my treatment. But I was, you know, confronted with the sort of situation, well, what do I do now? And um, I just want to hear from you guys, what do you, What would you all do if you were in my situation and you got called that your patient was in the ED and it looked like he had something going on upstairs?
0: I mean, I know that I would want to reach for steroids, but, you know, knowing a little bit about immunotherapy, I also get a little bit nervous in these situations because steroids seem counterproductive when you're also giving them immunotherapy to treat their systemic disease. So I'm actually unsure uh, what I would do in this situation.
1: I think this is a really tough situation and in anything we do in oncology. And as we go through a lot of these episodes, our, I hope our listeners understand that there's a lot of gray areas in oncology, and it's really difficult to know exactly what to do with every situation. And, and we always don't have a perfect answer. So in this case, I think one of the early concerns with immunotherapy is that if you give steroids, especially in a guy like this who responded so well, that his disease may relapse and you just mess with your chance to continue this magical immunotherapy drug, giving him his, his good remission and response. But we know now that as we treated many of these immunotherapy adverse events, whether it's the colitis or the hypophysitis or some of these other things that happen with immunotherapy, these patients can be re-challenged with immunotherapy and do just fine. That that adding steroids to treat some of these very significant complications is actually an okay thing to do. So in this guy, I would I would reach for the steroids and just give the steroids. Or really in any patient that's having an oncologic emergency, I think it's definitely acceptable to always reach for the steroids and give it because it's not going to completely ruin your current treatment plan
2: well that makes me feel a lot better because that is exactly what i asked them to do you know i, I think we, we even talked about this a little bit last week where when it comes down to it you know you need to take care of the urgent issue first and in the emergent issue first and in this case that was vasogenic edema in the man's brain like that's a that's a serious deal so you know I told him, go ahead and give him the steroids. I I asked him to give a pretty hefty loading dose of 10 milligrams dexamethasone IV up front. And then, you know, follow it up with four milligrams every six hours. Um, you can do every six or eight hours, uh, sort of depend, or sorry, every six hours, or you can do eight milligrams BID, but I wanted to kind of hit him more consistently. So I went for the closer dose interval there. And, you know, if he had come in with milder symptoms, not with intractable vomiting or, and just maybe a little bit of edema surrounding a couple of smaller lesions, you don't have to go quite as aggressive. Uh, and you don't necessarily need a loading dose, dose and you can just kind of hit him with four milligrams BID or maybe even daily, uh, depending on sort of how much edema is up there. But um, in this case, I, I kind of wanted to go hard. And you're absolutely right. You know, over the long term, not really likely to affect the efficacy of his, of his immunotherapy. A lot of times we're thinking about steroids kind of being given before the start of immunotherapy is having a much longer term and more significant impact on the efficacy of therapy. But yeah, in this case, like I mentioned, again, the emergency needed to be taken care of. And and that's a quick way to sort of temporize to to get that edema down.
0: And I guess for for more uh, definitive management for this sort of issue, in my experience, I feel like we also rely on some of our colleagues. So radiation oncology and or neurosurgery are so super important in situations like this to, you know, especially if this is oligometastatic disease, as in a single site of disease that's in the brain, some of our colleagues in these specialties are able to provide some uh, definitive management for that area. And potentially, we can kind of you know, treat the acute problem with a surgical or radiation onco- oncological intervention and continue the treatment that he's getting systemically because everywhere else it seemed to be working. But again, I think that this falls into one of those gray areas that Vivek talks about. And so I'm, I'm very curious to hear what, you know, uh, to hear about this from the perspective of a neurosurgeon and a radiation oncologist. And so once again, I'm excited to switch gears a little bit and play some of our our recording and of our discussions with our specialists about this topic. Moving on to our next case, I'm joined once again by Dr. Ryan Miller from Thomas Jefferson University Hospital, um, who is going to talk about the radiation oncology perspective to some of these common problems that we face, uh, these oncologic emergencies that we commonly face. Um, and so Ryan, thanks again for for joining us today.
3: Yeah, of course. Happy to be here.
0: So, Ryan, in in this case, uh, you know, I want to talk to you about uh, a patient with metastatic disease to the brain. And essentially, the scenario that we were discussing uh, was that this is for a 65-year-old gentleman with stage 4 lung adenocarcinoma who is status post-carboplatin, pemetrexid, and pembrolizumab, and now just on maintenance therapy with pembrolizumab, who had achieved CR. Over the past month or so, he started developing worsening headaches, blurry vision, intractable nausea, and vomiting. He came to the ER. He had a CT scan that was done that was suggestive of a new mass and concerned for surrounding vasogenic edema. So, you know, in this situation, it, it seems very likely that this patient does have metastatic disease to the brain. And so one of the 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 conversations that often ensues after we see a finding like this is, you know, do we call the neurosurgeons to do a surgical intervention? Or do we call radiation oncology to do something like serotactic radiation to the area? And I I feel like people just often call both and then whoever decides that they're going to do it does it and 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 you know again we're trying to get the patient better but I'm curious to know if maybe you could talk a little bit about SRS what is that how do you decide if someone's a good candidate for it um and and how do you decide if they are a good candidate what their treatment course is going to look like
3: Yeah no absolutely so and this is a very common scenario we see, you know, as radiation oncologists. So, you know, brain metastases are essentially the most, you know, common intracranial tumor that we treat um, as radiation oncologists, more so than even, you know, primary CNS disease. And, you know, when we think about treatment approach, um, things like surgery and then different techniques as it pertains to radiation are, are used. And you mentioned one of them, stereotactic radiosurgery. Sometimes you'll see the acronym SRS um, used by kind of the radonc community, you know, that's sometimes considered as well. And, you know, SRS in general, basically what that's referring to is the use of, you know, a very high dose of radiation typically delivered in a single treatment. Um, radiation oncologists will use the term fraction, so a single fraction of, of treatment, And this treatment is delivered very focally to the area of disease that we can see on imaging. So usually what we're doing is we're kind of delineating disease that we see, typically on MRI, and then we're giving a small margin kind of around that region to kind of encapsulate any treatment setup error or maybe any subclinical disease that the MRI is not picking up on. And for brain metastases, you know, SRS is a great option, right? So when you think about brain metastases, you know, these are typically very small tumors. Usually they're pretty well circumscribed and usually they're kind of right at that gray white matter interface. So they're usually situated in such a way that they're removed from, you know, optic nerves, optic chiasm, spinal cord, brainstem, right? All those critical structures, Mm -hmm. That would make an SRS treatment a little bit more technically challenging. So mm-hmm. for that reason, when we think about brain metastases, you know, SRS can be a great option.
0: That's really, really good to know. And, you know, one of the things that you you kind of spoke of when we were talking about the SVC syndrome uh, on our previous discussion what are, what are some, some pearls or takeaways or like things that you want the person placing this consult to know things that we can do to help expedite this process for our patients to share with us what, what you wish, you know, people would put in, uh, into the chart before they called you all.
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. So, you know, when we get, called with the consult, you know, again, typically these patients are coming through the emergency room. Usually the first step is, you know, a CT head because they're trying to rule out some type of kind of acute bleed or, or something kind of more sinister. But, you know, in terms of radiation oncology planning, you know, if, if an MRI hasn't been done, the next question a radiation oncologist is going to ask for is an MRI and typically you know the way to kind of think ahead is that the MRI that's obtained is the MRI that we use when we do our treatment planning so when we when we're using MRI imaging we ideally like a very thin kind of cut MRI so something that gives us some pretty good target delineation because again keep in mind when we're treating brain metastases Some of these are on the spectrum of only a couple of millimeters, right? So we need an imaging modality that's going to be able to pick up on that. So a good quality MRI is going to be crucial. And for that reason, as you would imagine, right, a CT head just, you know, isn't going to cut it, Um, you know, no pun intended, but, um, yeah, (laughs) yeah, you know, um, (laughs) yeah, so, so, you know, that's, that's going to be kind of most important, most key. The other thing, you know, from a medical management standpoint is that if a patient's presenting, you know, with symptomatic brain metastases, ideally they've been started on steroids, right? And typically, you know, dexamethasone, decadron is something that we'll ask about, you know, if the patients already on steroids. Have they received a loading dose? What's their current maintenance dose? Um, these are all things that are, that are key. And then, you know, to your point, right, when you brought up the scenario, you know, neurosurgery should be consulted at the same time as us. It should really be a multidisciplinary discussion, just like it was for the SVC syndrome when we were kind of discussing our role versus the role of interventional radiology. We should never be making this decision in a vacuum. So, we should always be kind of working along with our neurosurgical colleagues and trying to figure out what treatment paradigm best suits the situation.
0: So well said. Thank you again for sharing, shedding light on this. And I, I just... A common theme, as our listeners know on the show, is that we always learn a lot from each other and from all of our guests. And I just feel like all these kind of, again, these amorphous things that just kind of happen in the hospital are are becoming so much more real and, and apparent after our discussion. So Ryan, thanks again for that. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely.
1: We have Josh Lowenstein here who is a neurosurgeon who trained at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill and is now in an attending. And I, I really appreciate you coming on the show. How are you doing today, Josh?
4: I'm great. Thanks for having me, Vivek. This is uh, it's pretty exciting.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's kind of crazy because I, I don't think I've ever really talked to a neurosurgeon about any of this, even though we consult you guys constantly.
4: Yeah, no, it's it's definitely um, something where we don't have these formal conversations nearly enough. Where we're kind of telling you what we want before we actually get on the phone about a, a patient. So it's it's nice to kind of hash this stuff out, and then when when it comes to patient care, you'll kind of know exactly what we're or kind of what we're looking for.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. I, I want to tell all of our listeners that actually, my fiance and I went to Josh's wedding. And at his rehearsal dinner, my fiance literally just poured a a whole glass of white wine on him. So thanks for still doing it after that.
4: Yeah, we still went through with it. Um, At least it was white wine. It wasn't red wine, which was saving grace and all was good. We were able to move forward. Very true.
1: Very true. Well, Josh, I wanted to get into the case I wanted to discuss with you today. And it's a case of a patient with a new brain metastasis that was found and, you know, I just wanted to fill in our listeners on a conversation that me and you had about interpreting the MRI imaging. And it's something that I think is really important and just a basic thing for us to know. A good way for looking for the brain mass is looking at the T1 post-contrast sequence. So if you got an MRI with contrast, looking at the T1 post-sequence. And then to interpret how much edema there is around that brain mass looking at the T2 sequence is very helpful in that case. So T1 post to look for the brain mass and then correlate that with the T2 sequence to look for vasogenic edema. So I thought that was great. But for this patient who came in with a brain metastasis, sometimes we have radiation oncology, do radiation to the lesion, and sometimes we have neurosurgeons operate. And I understand that that's a more complex, nuanced issue that you two talk about. But one of the questions that I had for you Whenever we have these patients, sometimes we see midline shift. And I always wondered, when is midline shift too much midline shift? And how do you really approach, approach when you need to urgently operate on a patient?
4: When I think of brain tumors, I think less of midline shift and more of like local mass effect. So uh, you think like midline shift is a real issue when you think of acute pathology. Like mm-hmm. if you go from having no midline shift to a centimeter of midline shift in, in two hours from a subdural, like that's a huge problem, but often with uh. these, you know, kind of tumors, you get, you know, changes over time. Like you can have a huge meningioma that causes a lot of midline shift, but that happened over 10, 15, 20 years and the surrounding brain can adapt to that pretty well. Um, so, you know, if there's a lot of midline shift, that just to me tells me that there's a lot of um, that, that the mass is big. But it, it doesn't perfect. necessarily tell me, you know, whether it doesn't really change anything because you could have someone with a, a brain tumor and a ton of midline shift who's like completely awake and alert and normal. Uh, um, but but um, it does tell you that obviously there's local mass effect. So the things that I look for is there is there like a lot of vasogenic edema, you know, like look, look at the T2 signal around a tumor, um, you know, that'll tell you whether there's local mass effect. But I look less at at midline shift with tumors, and I do other signs of local mass effect, just like effacement of the ventricles, and that's just to tell you like how big the tumor is. It's it's less it's less of a big deal. Midline shift, I would say, is less of a big deal in oncology than it is when you think of you know your your person coming in with a subdural hematoma or an or intraparenchymal hemorrhage. Um, I mean, if you have like a you could have hemorrhagic Mets if you have a Met that hemorrhages, and then they have all of a sudden have a big change and have more midline shift. That to me can be worrisome, but that again is is a less common, is a less common thing.
1: That makes sense. Um, so w- when we consult you, like you know, if internal medicine or oncology consults you about a brain tumor and and you know, let's say doing an operation, what it, one of the things that you guys ask us a lot is you know, what is this patient's overall prognosis? And my question really comes from when you do these surgeries, what's the recovery look like and what's the morbidity to the patient?
4: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, when I am, when I'm looking at it, a lot of it is what's the prognosis, but it's also, do they have other viable options for treatment? So like, you know, if, if you're going to do treatment for a a metastatic tumor, um, what you want to know is, uh, you know, will will they live for long enough that that doing that surgery will will have practical benefit in their in their overall care? And I would say, you know, it it, it varies from patient to patient with how people bounce back from from brain tumor surgery. Some people, you know, I, I have a lot of patients that go home on post op day two from from a you know frontal met resection, and a lot of that really depends on their preoperative functional status. So what's their performance status before? Um, and how bad are their neurologic symptoms from whatever tumor they have? So if they're, if they're functionally not doing well before surgery, it's likely that they're going to take a somewhat of a hit when they go through their surgery. And sometimes that, that hit, I worry, will set them back even further. You know, if you aren't doing that great, you go through a surgery, you end up, you know, functionally a little bit worse off. That's, a, you know, and you're not doing that well to start out with. That's a big hit. If you are doing well, most patients um, seem to bounce back, you know, unless they are introduced some type of significant neurologic deficit, which I think happens a, a, a small percentage of the time. And if, if they are going to get that, it's, it's a known risk and something that they can be counseled about before, before their surgery.
1: That makes a lot of sense. Um, last question I have for you about this is, you know, let's say you get this consult, what would you, as a neurosurgeon, what is essential for us to give you when we, you know, when we ask you this question?
4: Yeah. So, I mean, I think the essential things are, you know, a lot of people get brain metastases diagnosed incidentally. So do they have any neurologic symptoms? A quick neurologic exam would be great in you know, a level of consciousness, orientation, any type of cranial nerve, you know, deficit, and then strength and sensation really, you know, 10 seconds. It's, it's pretty quick. Um, we want to know the, their history of malignancy. So is it recent diagnosis of cancer? Was it distant um, what type of cancer, are there lots of lesion, you know, are they, they what, widely metastatic cancer or just, you know, just, um, pretty well controlled. And then the other things that are pretty important are, you know, t- some type of, of, organ failure. So renal failure, uh, liver failure, and then any type of cardiopulmonary thing that would prevent them from being able to undergo surgery is important. And then anticoagulants and antiplatelet medicines, which will, um, delay any type of surgical intervention, particularly the antiplatelet agents, which you know once they're on an antiplatelet uh, agent, especially some of the newer antiplatelet agents, you have to wait you know five to seven days to, to do some some uh, of the invasive interventions that we do on people to to do anything if they're on say a Plavix um, or or some other antiplatelet agent. Most of the anticoagulants can be reversed relatively quickly, or at a minimum will, will be often 40 to 70 to 72 hours, something like that.
1: So what about something like ibuprofen or, or low-dose aspirin? How, what, what's the time period that you would want them off of that? Not not a Plavlix, but one of those two.
4: So I think if you talk to a lot of different neurosurgeons, you get a lot of ans- different answers about um, what to do with uh, aspirin. i, I I don't make much of NSAIDs like ibuprofen. I, I prefer that my patients not be on ibuprofen. If I'm going to counsel them preoperatively, I'll tell them not to take NSAIDs for a few days prior to surgery, but I don't think there's good evidence for or against NSAIDs being a, uh, a real predicament for your, your platelet function. In terms of uh, aspirin, I would like my patients to be off aspirin for five to seven days prior to a surgery that's elective. If something's a little bit more urgent, um, uh, I, I do do surgery, you know, some brain surgeries and, and spinal surgeries on them on baby aspirin. Um, if you're going intraparenchymal, if you're going into the brain, um, and they've been on aspirin within the last seven days, I will give them a, a, a unit of platelets, but, um, it's kind of nuanced and we don't have great data to say one way or the other for any of this stuff. You're kind of basing it on experience, but. I know there are a lot of neurosurgeons who operate on baby aspirin and don't think it makes too much of a difference.
1: Awesome. Thanks so much for answering all of our questions, Josh. And, you know, this is Dr. Lowenstein. We have an attending neurosurgeon with us. And, you know, I really hope that this is a really informative discussion for me. And I hope that all of our listeners, whether you're internal medicine or an oncologist, we all glean a lot from this. And, you know, we need to have more of these conversations with with our consultants. I feel like that was really a fantastic episode. Once again, I learned so much from our radiation oncology expert and our neurosurgery expert. And Ronick, I just, you know, take us home, tell us, give us one last recap.
0: Yeah, you know, I just, I think at the end of the day, it's all about a multidisciplinary discussion. And, you know, this is something that we say all the time, but I think situations like this really highlight the importance of simply just reaching out to a colleague and asking them what their thoughts are. And sometimes it's necessary to get multiple people and multiple multiple specialties kind of at a table, you know, either a, a literal table or a virtual table. Um, a metaphorical table just to kind of have this conversation because there are so many nuances and it's
1: kind of hard to
0: make all of these decisions in a vacuum
1: I think I think my two biggest takeaways is that midline shift that happens chronically you don't have to worry about it immediately it's one of those things that can get compensated for and then the other really big thing I learned from Josh was that you know when we're thinking about, how how much edema is happening, looking at that T2 signaling on the MRI, because we have all those sequences and that T2 sequence looking at phasogenic edema and how much is present can really help us figure out how quickly we need to treat the problem.
2: Yeah, and I'm just grateful we have these experts do to do their thing. You know, I'll keep the platelets above 100. I'll watch the lymphocyte count after radiation. But uh, yeah, just many, many thanks to our guests. Today. It, was, it was great having them on.
0: A hundred percent. Couldn't agree more. Well, I think that wraps up another great episode until next time. See you all later. See you later. Peace.